Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Jamie here. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying the content in my Philacrosophy podcast, my Inside the Eight podcasts, or my a Lacrosse Weekend blogs, I would encourage you to check out the store at jamefreesports.com. I've created awesome content for coaches, players, and parents in both men's and women's lacrosse. For coaches, the coaches training program. It's, it's a combination of cutting edge and practical. We have Division I men's and women's coaches all the way down to high school, JV, and youth. For players, I've created JM3 Player Academies, which are designed to teach every variation of every skill for boys and girls across. And for parents, I've created JM3 Recruiting Portal, where I've taken all of the content from my blogs, my podcasts, from webinars, and other interviews, and pooled all of this information in one place where parents can get access to incredible content and insights from the very coaches that you're hoping to play for. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to introduce John Tillman to the Philacrosophy podcast. John is the head coach at the University of Maryland. And uh, Tills, I'm so fired up to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. So um, as I usually do with this podcast, I really want to dive in a little bit to begin with into your lacrosse journey as a player and a coach and talk about some of the mentors and experiences along the line. Uh, so maybe you could start off with, uh, you know, the high school days back in Corning and then we'll move our way yeah. into college and coaching and so on and so forth. Yeah, I was, I was really lucky to grow up in uh, an awesome uh, small town in, in upstate New York with uh, just, you know, a sense of community, a lot of great people. Um, some awesome friends, um, you know, just a real supportive, uh, you know, group of teachers and coaches that everybody knew. Um, it was definitely very much small town USA, uh, but it was, it was great. And I think sometimes you, it takes you a little while to reflect back, to kind of think back and go, man, it, you know, I knew I had it good, but um, I had it really good um, in so many ways. And it wasn't, you know, like we were the biggest city, but in a way that kept things fairly simple and, um, you know, it was all about, you know, relationships and, uh, you know, people uh, getting you ready, um, you know, through sports and, um, you know, learning how to play the game, but playing it the right way and um, developing relationships and friendships and growing and get you ready for the next stage of your life. Um, so um, still proud to call Corning, you know, where I grew up and a lot of great friends that I'm still uh, close with. Um, you know, and I think it's probably, you know, way back, I look back at, you know, the teachers and coaches that um, I spent a lot of time with. That's probably why I coach now, because uh, they were so impactful on me. And, um, you know, we would go out in the summertime and, you know, we'd go get up early, have breakfast and, and just go to the park. And we'd be at the park, it just seemed like most of the day. Um, and, and, and we'd create games and make up games and, um, you know, whether it was, you know, flag football or touch football or, 
uh, wiffle ball, um, you know, basketball, whatever it may be. And, you know, it, what was kind of cool is we would create those games and you were in charge of the rules, you were in charge of officiating. Um, and, and, and in a way it was, it was kind of neat. You used your imagination and, um, you know, it kept you busy. And in a lot of ways it, it helped you with maybe your athletic IQ because you were always, um, you know, you're always competing and, and playing sports. So it was a lot of fun. It's a lot like the uh, videos we were watching right before the podcast. No doubt about it. Um, and, and again, like you'll come up with some, some interesting things. And um, again, I think you, you, you get to the summertime and just being with your friends, which I, I know a lot of folks uh, weren't able to do as much as they'd like. Uh, it was really just about being around your friends and developing those friendships. Yeah. And, um, you know, you realize you got some, you know, competitive guys that were, were in your neighborhood. Um, so that was cool. So you were a goalie in high school, right? And you played at Corning East or Corning West? Yeah, so I was kind of late to the game. Uh, didn't really start getting involved until high school. Um, I, I grew up, you know, played a lot of basketball and, and football. Not that I was good at either, but, um, you know, just traditional conventional sports. And, um, you know, just um, my, my PE teacher from, from elementary school was a JV lacrosse coach and said, hey, you should try this out. And uh, so I tried out and... Candidly, I just was so new to the sport. I tried out for midfield, and I was so far behind in the skills. Um, he was like, well, why don't you, you know, we need a goalie. Why don't you play goalie? So um, jumped in the goal and, um, you know, really liked the challenge of it. You know, it's a really hard position in so many levels. Um, and, you know, that challenge to me was really intriguing. Um, you know, every, every time you went out, it was different. You know, you were seeing different shots. And um, so – Really enjoyed that and then just kind of fell in love with it and then really, you know, still played two other sports. But when I got the chance to play lacrosse, it was awesome and uh, just grew to love every aspect of the game. Um, and um, I went to Corning West. Uh, there were two schools that back in then there were two schools in my town, um, you know, just two rival schools. And, um, you know, their school, Corning East, was, you know, their, the record speaks for itself. Theirs was much better than ours. Uh, but you knew those guys and. Uh, those guys are all good friends too now, and uh, they're all Corning guys. And uh, when I see those guys, we're still tight. Um, you know, we still talk about, you know, all things Corning. It's the center of the universe for us. We're really proud of it. Um, uh, places like Emilio's Pizza, that if we ever get back, we like going to. So, Tills, you ended up at, at Cornell. Please tell us about your um, times there. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes in a roundabout way, um, you know, you get faced with some challenges, um, but and and you pivot. But there's a lot of growth there, and I think we're seeing that as a country right now. But you know, I went to Cornell, and um, obviously grew up about an hour away, and uh, you know, great school, a tremendous program. Um, and when I got there, that we had so many talented goalies, um, and you know, looking at the the, the late great Paul Schmoller, um, tremendous player, great guy. Um, you know, was one of the leaders of the team. Um, but Joe Solomon was there. Justin Brown was there. Timmy Shea. We, we had some just awesome players in goal. And Keith Reitbach was, was a defensive coordinator and just mentioned, hey, if anybody wants to uh, switch positions, we've had some success with guys, you know, moving out of the goal and moving onto the field. And um, for me, I, I was a guy that maybe wasn't the biggest, fast, or strongest, but I was a guy that could run, you know, had pretty good endurance and could run all day. And um, and so that might have suited my skills better anyway. 
yeah. um, and, and had a, you know played enough basketball where some of the, the defensive concepts you know seemed to apply. So um, yeah, it was a transition. It was challenging. It was tough. Uh, there were some tough moments, um, discouraging moments, but was really driven to try to you know do that pivot and uh, try to help the team in any way I could. And um, still had some great teammates that helped me away, you know, along the way, guys like Tony Morgan, you know, that kind of took me under their wing, Paul Shea, uh, yeah. just great guys. And, and they really helped me. And, and I learned a lot about the overall game. Um, and then senior year, they, they tried to, you know, have me play a little bit of offense and short stick and um, did the best I could. I didn't, and, you know, I didn't really have the, the, just, the confidence and and I'm and compared to the other guys, the ability I think to to help our team on that end. So um, moved back to defense and just felt like I was a guy. The big thing I could do every day is go out and compete and help the team in any way possible. So no one's going to compare my my college career with uh, you know Mikey Powell's um, <laughs> you know or Paul Rabel's, but uh, yeah. uh, there was a lot of learning and growth and, and joy in my in my journey. Tell us a little something about what it was like to play for. Uh the legendary Richie Moran. Yeah, and he really was legendary. Um, he was a larger-than-life guy, um, charismatic, um, full of personality. You know, he'd challenge you on the field. Um, he really wanted to push you to be your best. Um, but he had this, this great sense of humor. Um, he had this great sense of joy. Um, you knew how much he loved Cornell, and he loved his players. And, um, you know, he was the master of uh, – practical jokes um, you know we do a lot of different things to keep things light and um, to, to in, a, in, a, in a playful fun way um, and uh, just tease you a little bit and uh, kept everybody on their toes and also kept you laughing and it kept you humble that's awesome and then so you started your coaching career at Ithaca yeah I, I planned on trying to save some money go to Australia um, I, I really you know i through one of the, the summer camps I had worked, um, met some people from Australia and they were doing, an, you know, kind of an exchange program where you'd go over and play. And um, so I planned on just staying in town for, for six months and, and going over in January and, and it just didn't work out. Um, so I reached out to a good friend of mine, Rich Barnes, um, who was the assistant coach at Ithaca College and, and it was a friend of mine. And um, he was coaching at Ithaca with Jeff Long and said, hey, you know, you might be able to volunteer um, this spring. So I reached out to uh, Jeff, who um, had played in our Corning Summer Box Leagues and was still, you know, just a phenomenal player. Um, and and uh, so I just said, hey, if there's, you know, if you need anybody to help out, I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd love to help out in any way possible, whatever you need. And he said, yeah, just, you know, come by. So uh, to me, it was an, just an awesome opportunity to learn a lot about the game and, um, you know, kind of get my feet wet and figure out that if it was something that I'd want to do. And um, it, we had a great season. We went to the, the D3 National Semifinals and um, just a great group of guys in that locker room. And again, many of which who I, I still stay in touch with. Um, and, and I just saw like the impact that, you know, Jeff had on those guys and, you know, the ability to impact you know, young people and shape them and help them and um, inspire them. And, you know, just that being part of that team still to me was, was pretty valuable. I, I, you know, I'd always been on a team or around a team and, and, and maybe there was something to that fact. I wasn't ready to give that up. And I was concerned about what life would be like without uh, being in that locker room and, and, and having all those strong bonds and relationships. So 
Um, after that year, Rich left um, and, and, and wasn't coaching. So Jeff was uh, nice enough to, to, to let me take his position and spent three years there and then, then headed down the Navy. So I, I never got a chance to see Longman play. I always heard, and there's not enough old video. I've certainly seen him warm up goalies, you know, from, from afar at, at 205 or something. But what was it like to coach for him, and, and what was he like as a player? And, and was there a sort of a correlation between those two things? Yeah, ultra competitive guy um, who demanded your best but had this unique way of, like, reaching guys – um, the guys that know him, love him. Um, there's this sense of loyalty on both sides to Jeff and his players and his players to him um, that is unique to him. Um, and he's got just this, you know, this, this is almost like Zen-like quality. Um, there's just something about him. Um, you want to be around him. You want to learn from him. Um, you do anything for him. Um, so he has that ability to bring that out of you, but you never feel attacked. Um, and you know why he's doing it because you know he, want what, he wants what's best for you. And, and as a player, um, he just – he was such a good player and could see things a lot of other players can't. Um, and you think about some of the best passers that are out there. Um, you know, a guy like Grant Ament who – just seems to know where guys are going to be and anticipates cuts and puts the ball in certain spots. You'd watch him play box and, and he would throw passes and guys would get hit like right in the head or in the stick and they weren't expecting the ball. And they learned quickly, if you're going to play with Jeff, you got to be ready because you may not think you're open, but he may throw you open. He may see an open, you don't. So be ready. And his vision, his understanding of the game. Uh, he was so smooth when he did it. Um, again, just a guy that made everybody around him better. But when he strapped it on, like he was as competitive as anybody, but off the field, again, caring, um, just uh, one of those guys who I just, every once in a while I connect to him, I just feel better about life. Um, it kind of gets me back to center. Um, you know, I had a few conversations the last few months and you know, we would chat and, you know, he would be like, man, that's the highlight of my weekend. And I text back, that's the highlight of my weekend. And uh, again, awesome. so thankful for the relationships through this game and you go through life. And, and that's the one that will always be special to me for, for so many reasons, you know, yeah. just as a friend, but also a mentor. And so Jeff obviously was uh, an all-time great at Navy and you went from Ithaca to Navy. Um, did, was there any, uh, was it, was it helpful to have Jeff Long, um, Giving you, uh, giving Navy the thumbs up that you, you you'd be a good fit. He he kind of jokes, you know. Jeff's got a great sense of humor, um, and he was like, you know, just don't bring up my name down there, um, and, <laughs> and, and, and not in the athletic department because he was a great player. But um, you know, kind of jokingly, you know, he graduated and did what he needed to do. I, I think there, you know, back in, in in his day, there was probably a little bit of yeah. um, sneaking out and. You know, I hope I don't get caught, um, yeah. you know, a little bit, a little, you know, John McCain's probably not far off that too, you know, not necessarily the model of midshipman, but a true patriot and great American. Yeah. So, Love you know, it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Jeff was spotted down in College Park a little bit, um, you know, during his four years on, on maybe a Wednesday or Thursday night at the Boo. <laughs> um, so, um, but he, he um, 
you know, obviously felt like the place was great, the program, the history, but also the things that you learn, you know, uh, not only from a great coach like Richie Mead, but also just being around those, those guys and the people and what that place stands for. And he's 100% right. So while in your time at Navy, which was what, from like 96 to 07 or 06, something like that? Yeah. Um, you guys, you know, you just – I don't know when it's sort of when that – corner was really turned but there was a time when you guys were as good as anybody and really were close to winning a national championship um tell tell us a little bit about what it was like to work for coach Mead and and how he led Navy to to that level and how you you know what your role was and how you grew in that role yeah I was really fortunate when I showed up you know there was Richie Mead and Matt Hogan and two guys that um, you know, we're both division one head coaches at, at good programs at one point. Um, and both guys just very different in their approaches, but man, talk about a young guy that was just learning from two greats and, and two guys that did it differently. So I was constantly stealing things, just ideas, philosophies, approaches, and just kind of taking my notes every day. Um, and you know, for coach Mead, I, you know, Navy, what a great fit for him. Um, you just, you know, recruits would talk to him and, you know, it wouldn't take long for them to realize how much he loved that place and how much he believed in the mission, the, you know, the institution and the people. Um, he loved his guys. He, you know, he would do anything for them. The guys would do anything for him. Um, so you see that passion. Um, and it was just a really cool thing to be part of. And I think the kids that came, they were excited about being part of that, you know, being part of that family and tradition. Um, so that was something we really built on, um, you know, was not only, you know, those guys there, but also, you know, making sure that the guys realized the, the tradition and history. And that's certainly something that we focus on, you know, at Maryland now. For sure. Um, so you, you kind of came up through the ranks um, as a defensive player and, and as a defensive coach. We didn't even talk about that, but which side of the ball at, at, at Ithaca were you coaching more of the defense? Yeah, I was, um, you know, a guy that spent most of my, my time playing on the defensive end. Um, so that's where I started. And then, um, you know, I, I was that summer I went to Navy. I also looked at a, a, a couple other positions. It just happened to be a year where there was a lot of movement. Um, and, you know, I, I looked at a couple other schools and I would have stayed on the defensive end. And then going to Navy, um, you know, Matt Hogan ran the defensive and was really good. And so part of, um, you know, what I thought about going to, to, it's a little bit different. It's kind of contrary to what people do today was, you know, I had to start all over again if I was going to go to Navy because I was going to work with the offense. And, you know, Coach Me kind of sold it. Like, listen, if you're going to be a head coach, you're better served in, in his opinion to know both sides of the ball um, because you've got to manage both sides. Um, so I, again, kind of pivoted. Um, and, you know, it takes a little humility. Um, you go from, you know, running a defense to, you know, your, your help assisting with the offense. But um, my brother had uh, – my dad was a Marine and my brother was a Marine and also went to the Naval Academy. And he just said, listen, you have a chance to go to, you know, the greatest – arguably the greatest you know, leadership institution in the world. Um, and you probably could say that for all the service academies as well. Um, they're all tremendous. But – you know, just think about everything else you learn outside of practice. And, and he was 100% right. 
Um, but I, I did, you know, I kind of started all over again and, and had to recalibrate, but, um, you know, learned a lot from Coach Mead and studied a lot of film and worked with some really good players. And again, like just all that stuff goes into your toolkit. And uh, the more tools in your toolkit, when you eventually become a head coach, you know, just the more you can relate to things. And it, it doesn't mean you're an expert in all those areas, but, right. you know, having played goalie at one point, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to be as good as anybody, but you, you know how it feels when a few go in, you know, and, and, you know, you're, you're kind of not feeling great about things and it makes you pause and go, all right, this is probably how he's feeling. This is how I need to talk to him. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that perspective I think becomes helpful down the road. No doubt. I think there's so many coaches that kind of pigeonhole themselves onto one side of the ball. And yeah, even if you stay on that side as an offensive coordinator, you still have to be able to give yourself a look. You know, you got to be able to like make sure the defense is playing how the defense that you're going to face plays. And it requires a knowledge and understanding of both sides of the ball to be a great coach. Yeah. And, and coach me was great. You know, like I would watch film with him. We'd talk about things and um, he was good at, and I think this is an art, you know, if I wanted to, to put something in, um, he'd go, all right, explain to me on the board how it's going to work. And he would challenge me like, what if they do this? And what if they do that? And I think that's what great coaches and leaders do yeah. is, um, you know, they, it's, there's checks and balances and playing devil's advocate. And, uh, you know, listen, I think it's all about once you get game day, you just, you want to make sure you've thought about every way this thing could work or not work. So you don't get surprised on game day. And he was great at that because he had so much experience. Yeah. Well, the 2004 championship game, still one of the greatest games ever to watch. I know it didn't go your way and, 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 uh, Mikey Powell, you know, did what Mikey Powell does. Um, but man, that was a fun team to play. You guys played fast. You guys played great offense. Um, how would you sort of characterize where your philosophy was at relative to how that team played at that time in 04? Yeah, there were, um, you know, some, some things that kind of came into play, you know, when we looked at that group there, you know, it's amazing how when you reflect back and uh, over the last few months, I've been watching some some old films here and there, and somebody posted that game, um, and it's the first time I think I've watched it in a while. And um, you know, I still stay in touch with a number of guys on that team, and uh, which is which is awesome. You know, that's the great thing about being able to just be have a group text or you know things like that is you're you're able to just stay in touch with guys, and you might get. 20 texts in a day, depending on what the guys are doing, you know, maybe what they're doing that night, who knows, but um, you still feel so connected. And that group was uh, just a tremendous group of guys. And, and a lot of that 04 team resulted from a, a tough 03 where our, our senior class, a lot of those guys got hurt um, and just kind of strange things and, and freak injuries where we played a lot of younger guys and uh, we took some lumps. And then when 04 happened, um, you know, we, we, a lot of guys were farther along cause they were forced to play and we strategically kind of look at that team and, you know, you got to give coach a lot of credit. You know, we, we changed how we played. We, we felt like we had good guys that could play fast. And I, I kind of watched in that game again. And, um, and I watched uh, our Hopkins 04 game as well. And, and, you know, you'd hear Quint talk about, you know, how we really attacked in early offense. Um, you know, we had guys like Clifford Lennon and, uh, and Bucky Morris, who was a pole, and, and Seth Danola, who was a goalie. And then we moved out and played pole. But 
we would, anytime we came in transition, we were going, Stevie Looney, all those guys, our, our, our transition game, we felt like we had skilled guys on the offensive end, like you know, Johnny Bersner and uh, Joe Bossy and Ian Dingman. Uh, but we also had really good athletes that were good defensive guys, but they were good offensive guys. Most of them, they, they, they weren't like D middies that we converted from defense. They were O guys that we converted from defense or to defense. And so, like, we did a lot of shooting in the offseason with those guys and, and even on a daily basis. So those guys were sharp. And, um, you know, there were games where maybe we were struggling in six-on-six six and those guys would, you know, we'd get a save, all of a sudden get out and we'd get a couple quick goals. And all of a sudden that changed the whole complexion of that game, um, you know, that game. Um, but we, we started off the season, I think we were maybe one and one. And then, you know, we were – teetering a little bit. We, we lost our second game of the year, and then um, we beat Carolina. We had made a goalie's change and put Matt Russell in, who was awesome. And um, the rest of the year, we just got kind of got on a roll, and, um, you know, guys just accepted their roles but played hard and unselfishly. And, um, you know, it was just a fun group to be around, but it was fun, obviously, seeing those guys enjoy that success. And, um, you know, still – Still like to maybe make a few different things uh, happen towards the end there. But, you know, regardless, you know, sometimes as a coach, it goes your way. Sometimes it doesn't. But um, to be with that group and spend all that time yeah. with them and still have those relationships, pretty awesome. Definitely special. And then your first head coaching gig up at Harvard. Uh, was that 08 and 09? 08, 09, 7, 8, 9? What were the years on that? Um, 8, 9, and, uh, and 10. 8, 9, and 10. Um, and so uh, before we get into um, the, your times at, uh, at Maryland, um, how was, what was it like to be a, a head coach and, and how did you manage your staff and sort of manage building a culture? And then I'd like to sort of talk about how you, what you learned from that when you got to Maryland. Yeah, I was really fortunate and, you know, thank Bob Scalise for the opportunity he and, you know, that administration gave me. I was an unproven guy, you know, as a head coach, so they were willing to give me a shot. So thankful for that um you know it was an interesting way it all went down because we, we the job came up and i didn't start until um you know fall had started um classes at both schools so uh, we were a little late in the game um starting up everything so that was a little bit of a challenge uh, it didn't happen in the middle of summer it really happened at the end of summer so um, you know, I, I remember talking to Seth Tierney when I first got the job and he just said, listen, your head's going to be spinning for the next year or two. Um, and just know that's natural. Um, you're going to make some mistakes. Um, and, and he's hundred percent, right. Um, the only way you can, you can get a lot of preparation as an assistant. You can, and coach Meaden was really great at, you know, helping me, you know, giving me responsibility, but it's different in the chair. Um, it just is, um, yep. and some things are similar, but some things just aren't, you know, it's different game planning um, and, and trying to make sure that you're prepared for man and zone and um, you're doing the drills for practice, but it's different when, you know, you get a phone call on a Friday night, um, you know, you, you find out maybe a family's going through a tough time and, you know, you've got to pivot and, and change your focus and, and that's your priority. It's not just, you know, scoring goals or, or defending somebody and, um, those are great things, um, you know, because I think you, your relationship can get even deeper um, and, you're, and you're helping people in, in different ways. Um, but nothing, there's nothing really like it until you're there um, and your head is spinning. 
Uh, you're trying to do a great job, but you're doing so many things. Um, so what I found was that you really need great people around you. And I think one of the best things that ever happened to me was, you know, Kevin Warren um, coming up and helping and, and, and um, you know, taking a chance with me. He had been at UMBC and, and UMBC was really doing an awesome job those, those mid-2000s. And, and Kev was a big part of that with Coach Sam. Um, so Kev took a chance, came up, um, you know, kind of sold him on a vision of what I thought we could do, but no, you know, no guarantee. And uh, just, you know, his experience, he could take one on the field and, and just run with it. And uh, just everything, you know, I could bounce so many things off him. And, you know, he's just a, a great friend, but a guy that, you know, just knew so much about lacrosse, recruiting, you name it. And, uh, you know, I'm not surprised he's doing as well as he is at Georgetown right now, but um, wouldn't have, you know, been able to make it there without him. Um, Anthony Kelly was on our first staff there. A lot of people oh, yeah. don't know that. I'm just, what a great guy. Um, just love lacrosse, uh, just loves people. Um, sincere guy, hard worker. I, I, I'm not surprised he lasted as long as he did professionally because um, he just is so passionate about the sport and uh, works so hard and he loves to compete. And So that was our first staff. Um, and uh, Greg Duboff was a guy that, that joined us as well who had played at Yale and uh, was in grad school up there. So our three years, um, you know, it, we, you know, I kind of joked when I interviewed for the Maryland job, it, it, it's not like we were you know, taking Harvard to the final four. So, um, you know, didn't know how well I'd be received, um, you know, at, in College Park, just because you're typically getting that job. You're, you know, you're coming off some, you know, amazing yeah. accomplishments. And we felt like we moved the needle and, and we did a lot of stuff at the ground level um, yeah. and, and didn't really stay maybe to see through all of that. Um, but, you know, when an opportunity like Maryland, Maryland presents itself, it's just hard to turn down. You know, you're talking about one of the, the great, you know, traditions in our sport. And you know, when you think of the sport of lacrosse, you know, you, you do think about the state of Maryland and, and the history and the, just what it means um, to the people that live there. So yeah, uh, emotionally it was very hard to leave because you, you put a lot of yourself into a program um, and that, that tore me up for a while. Um, but, you know, like anything else, you just, kind of keep moving forward and you realize the kids that we're going to go to school up there, we're going to be just fine. So you inherited a team that was really good and you were succeeding a great coach in Dave Cottle. Um, what was that like to come in and have to try to be, create your own culture, but at the same time know that you were inheriting something pretty good. And then how did culture from there, how did you evolve it into where you are now? Yeah, we, uh, that was one of the things I talked about in the interview process. Um, again, I was pretty, you know, focused on, you know, where I was and I really couldn't see anything else for, for a long time. You know, Kevin Plank called and I could tell why he did such a good job at Under Armour. Um, you know, <laughs> he's a pretty persuasive guy. And, uh, but I kind of mentioned that, you know, to Debbie Yao, who was then the athletic director. I'm like, listen, you just had one of the great coaches of all time in your locker room. And I'm, listen, he knows more about lacrosse than I do, you know? And so that was one of the things I had to just make sure I, you know, got out there because I really respect Dave Cott a lot. I still do. I still stay in touch with him. I consider him a friend. Um, yep. You know, his son just graduated from Maryland not too long ago. Um, so, um, you know, I think obviously it was 
an opportunity. Um, I'm, I'm lucky for a number of reasons. You know, you know, Ryan Moran was there, so he stayed on the staff, and so did John Stainbrook. So I had two guys that were there that were going to stay on, and then Kevin and I came down from Harvard. So, you know, there was a lot of good chemistry, and then there was some, you know, some guys that had been there that could help bridge the gap. Um, but you nailed it. Um, you know, Coach Cottle and that staff, Coach Loft, Ryan, they – there were a lot of really good players in that locker room. And, and that's not typical of why a job comes open. A lot of times it's right. Something's not going well and you got to start all over. Um, I, I had a great group of guys, um, guys that were very close guys that wanted to be great. Um, you know, it was important to them. Um, and, and sometimes it's not so much knowing more than anybody else. It just, maybe it's the change. Maybe it's just some tweaks. Maybe those guys being a year older, um, I think on top of that, I was really lucky that I had Dave's support. So it wasn't like it was just what I did. It yeah. was, you know, Coach Cottle loved those kids. So he worked with us. He helped us. You know, so did Dick Adele, you know, and, and so did Coach Beermore. So did Coach Dino Manosic. So, you know, the last four coaches before me were guys that I was calling and talking to and asking for their advice. So, I didn't go in there like, okay, this is the way I'm going to do it. I had years and years and decades of experience that I could utilize and, you know, say, Hey, what did you do? Well, you know, what do you think didn't work? Um, and they were gracious enough to help me. Um, so I think when we won it in, in, in 17, there was a sense of um, this was, was 40 years in the making, 42 years in the making, but all those guys that were on those teams, they actually helped us do it together. Certainly the coaches, but the alums who have been so supportive and stuck with us. Yeah, it was a long time, but man, we all celebrate that, celebrated that together. Um, and it wasn't like we came in and pushed everybody to the side. I just felt like we needed those guys. We needed their help and they were so helpful to us. And, and I'm thankful for, especially Coach Cottle in a situation like that you know, could have gone the other way. And he, and he really did everything he could to help those kids and, and help our program, which obviously speaks volumes of him. So starting up a culture at Maryland was really a group project with the current players and the former coaches and you and your assistants. Um, how, how, did, how did that shape the way it went on? You know, you've been there 11 years and Things have obviously changed and evolved from 2011 season to the 2017 championship season to, to last season. How, how has that evolved and how would you characterize it? Um, you know, I, I didn't think it was broken when we got to Maryland, you know, like they were close, um, you know, it, so it was more like, okay, we don't really need to overhaul this thing. We're really lucky. Maybe we need to tweak some things. Um, and again, um, you know, you kind of look and, you know, half the staff was there and half the staff was new. So, and, yep. and then we had a good senior group, right? So you're going to get a big bump whenever you get a senior class. So, yep. you know, we, we were set up for success. We had 17 seniors and, and that was really helpful. Yeah. Um, but also like 17 seniors on a lacrosse team is, is kind of non-conventional. Um, and that's a lot of guys who are playing their last year and only 10 play. So that posed a few challenges too, because, you know, anybody who doesn't play is disappointed. Um, and I've been there and it's one thing to be a freshman who knows there's a lot of time left. Um, when you're a senior, 
you know, you get a new coach and you're hoping that maybe, all right, this is my opportunity, fresh start, which we provided, but you were going to have to make sure you manage some expectations too, because we, we had some talented younger guys. So um, that was, there were a lot of challenges that we had to face to, to try to make sure we kept everybody together and everybody kind of staying focused on what was best for Maryland and uh, for, for us to achieve, achieve our team goals. Um, making sure that, you know, guys were, were pretty dialed in and we had great leadership, you know, we, you know, guys like Ryan Young and, and Brian Farrell, you know, that, that class was a, a, a great class. Brett Schmidt still playing, you know, and, um, you know, uh, Max Schmidt, you know, you go Ryder Borlander, we had all these terrific guys that can go on and on. Um, and, uh, you know, so that was an interesting thing. What, what you're going to do, right, whenever you take over a job is you got to be you. Um, but we, we did was we looked at all the things that, you know, were in place and a lot of them were similar to things that we had done. And, and, and then much like Kev took things from, you know, Delaware and UMBC and, and Harvard, when we were there, I was taking things I had learned from, you know, Ithaca college and Navy and Harvard. And, you know, we, we put them all in there together and said, all right, which things apply best here. And, um, you know, we, we had our moments that year where, um, things didn't go well. Um, you know, we had some, some tough games where we struggled and then we had other games where we did well. And, and luckily, um, we were able to kind of get things going at the end of the year at the right time, um, all while, you know, kind of dealing with, you know, a tough thing. You know, I, I get down there and within the first month, I get a call from, um, you know, Maria Young and she tells me, you know, she's got cancer and, um, she's not sure she's going to make it through the year. And, um, again, like that's as a head coach, it's all right, this is a, you know, different thing to navigate through. It's important. Like, I got to make sure I talk to Ryan and, um, you know, we got to make sure that we take care of him and support his family. And, um, unfortunately she passed, um, you know, right, be, right after our, our Hopkins game that year. And, so that was the last month and, you know, Ryan had been, you know, trying to, you know, do the best he could managing it. But even at that moment, it was, okay, we're coming towards the end of your career here. Um, you're getting ready to graduate. Um, you know, let's make sure we, you know, take care of Ryan. Um, that's the number one thing that we need to do. We're, we got a young guy and his family there are struggling and, but obviously the train's rolling. So you're, you're, carefully and, and respectfully trying to make sure that you do those things. And um, that requires a lot of conversations and a lot of communication. And it's hard because, you know, young guys don't really like to talk about uncomfortable things. You know, most guys don't, we're kind of wired that way. So um, I give those guys a lot of credit. His teammates were phenomenal um, in supporting him. Our families, uh, one of the one visions I, I remember from that year is, you know, we're playing Carolina on a, on a Friday in the first round of the ACCs. And um, it was the week after Maria passed and they made all these Maryland lacrosse shirts with forever young on the back of them. And unfortunately it rained that day. And, and instead of wearing the rain jackets, uh, the parents just wore that, those purple shirts in the rain, they got soaked, but it was a, just a show of their love and support for Ryan and his family. And they're willing to just get doused because it was raining hard. Yeah. And uh, they made it very clear they wanted to Ryan to know. And, and, and they, that show of purple in the stands stuck out so much. And one of my proudest days uh, in coaching and, and at Maryland, of course, uh, just seeing that show support. And, and it wasn't about winning and losing. It was just about yep. people coming together to care about, you know, a member of your family. I remember those purple shirts well. 
So how would you characterize the culture of being a Maryland lacrosse player and the vision? You know, I, it's funny. We, we're really lucky. Um, you know, Coach Beardmore did all the coaches after him a, a great favor. Um, everybody, you know, you talk about teams and they, they're like, all right, what's our saying this year? You know, like, all right, what's our slogan? What are we going to put on our shirts? Um, and honestly, like, you know, I mean, he, he had a saying, be the best. And that was, you know, 40 plus years ago. And it hasn't changed. Like, and, and so the rest of us never had to really come up with, okay, we're going to, we're going to put this up in the locker room. It, it, to me, it's simplicity, but it's brilliance. It's be the best person, student and player you can be. And if you want to come here, that's what we subscribe to be. Um, it's not for everybody. Um, you know, you're going to get challenged because to be your best. Yeah. It's almost impossible, right. To, to know exactly what, your best, your perfection could be, yep. but, but that's what we aspire to be. And that means there's always improvement that you could probably make. So that means some scrutinizing, some challenging, some prodding, some uncomfortableness, um, people challenging you, uh, some uncomfortable conversations. Um, but for a guy who's a high achiever, who wants that, that, you know, has like is never satisfied, um, and, and as a high achiever, those guys become really successful if they're willing, you know, to take some constructive criticism, you know, whether it's by the coaches or the players. Um, but then when they see like what that can do for them, and sometimes it isn't um, criticism, it's praise. It's like, man, you're doing a great job, but you'll, you'll definitely, if you think you're doing great, we're going to try to take it up one more level. Um, and, and we don't want you to be satisfied. How satisfying though, was it for you to watch your former Terps win a back-to-back, -back, win another championship in the PLL? And how did the Be the Best culture, how did you sort of see that happening when you were watching those games? Yeah, the, the things that, you know, I like about that group, um, you, you read some of the articles that came out and, that, you know, talked about the defense and uh, just guys in general, you know, like defensively, you're lucky because, you know, a lot of times out there of the seven guys, um, you'd have six Maryland guys. So, um, and, and all of those guys, you know, kind of had that same mindset. And sure, we tweak things year to year, but yeah. You know, philosophically, a lot of the things we do defensively, you know, and are, are, are kind of back to what Kev did at UMBC and, and things that we did at Navy and, and John Stainbrook, you know, who had been with us for a while at Maryland. So we kind of meshed all those things. But, you know, we, we definitely give the guys creativity, but there's also a system that you fall back on. And you got to have some core values and some, some things systematically that you do, you could hear some of the terminology was the same. I thought Coach Murph did a great job of, you know, kind of taking that and saying, it's very similar to what we did in 11, like, you know, like it's not broken. Um, and so those guys play really well together. And, you know, like you, you throw a guy like Ty Warner in there, who's tremendous, um, great athlete, smart, um, tough as nails. Um, and, you know, you got a great group down there a lot of times. Um, but just their approach was very, we, not me, um, yeah. you know, guys didn't care who they matched up against. It wasn't like who you matched up against. It was about just getting it done. Um, Kyle was praising the defense. Um, you know, the guys were kind of uh, praising each other. And 
um, you know, almost um, in a humorous way, you know, when they, I love it when they mic up Maddie and, you know, he constantly goes back to, we just play whip snakes ball. We don't care who scores. Uh, we hit singles, you know, uh, they yeah. kind of played off how many times he said played singles, but that whole team, and it wasn't just the Maryland guys, you know, all those guys shared the ball in offense. They didn't really care who, you know, got the credit. Um, every game, it seemed like it was somebody else. And, um, man, Zed was so much fun to watch. What a tremendous player and, and just role model and ambassador of the game he is. He, you know, he's a, a guy that, you know, well well done is is, is very much his, his motto. You know, well done is better than well said. And, boy, was he, he tremendous. And I just remember watching him as a player and, and seeing him in high school. Uh, just, man, he is awesome. And, and I think, again, kudos to the, the, the coaching staff and, and their management. Uh, to some of those key off-season acquisitions really paid off. And, uh, yes. and some of the guys, like, like a Nards, who's a, you know, a guy that didn't play at Maryland, like he was a big part of that. So I love that our Maryland guys had success, but I think knowing that it was much more than just Maryland guys, it was all these guys gelling together. And, and again, just trying to be their best for the team was super cool. For sure. Well, let's switch gears. I would love to hear what your defensive philosophy is at the University of Maryland. Yeah, I think we, we're very systematic. Um, I think we, you know, again, it's a product of, you know, where you've been. And, uh, you know, for me personally, going down to Navy and uh, Matt Hogan, we had some really good defenses, um, you know, in, in the late 90s. Um, we had some really good personnel, Mickey Jarbo, um, you know, and, and I think at Navy, you're always going to have, you know, good defenses, um, goalies. Um, and so, you know, those guys are used to having that defensive mindset, right? Like we're protecting something. That's just what they do. Yeah. It's a bunch of unselfish guys. They're disciplined guys. Um, the sum of the parts is, you know, hopefully better than the parts. So, um, you know, I think Princeton defense was very much like that for a long time. So I think, you know, we all stole something from Coach T from what he did back in the day. And yep. not that other people didn't do it too, but I think Coach T obviously is, is one of the great arch architects of the defensive schemes people utilize today. So there's a lot of that there, um, giving credit where credit's due. I just think knowing who we play, um, you, you just need to be able to protect your short sticks. Um, so you have to have guys that are good on ball, um, but you got to have guys that are good off the ball and that can communicate that, you know, understand how to slide and recover and talk and, um, you know, make good decisions. Um, you heard that all during the PLL, the mic'd up stuff was awesome. You could hear guys talking to each other. Um, and that requires, you know, guys that, you know, will get out of their comfort zone and talk. Um, they got to watch film. Um, you know, they, it, most kids don't play that when high school. And if they do, it, it may be at a certain level, but typically it's going up a level. Um, so we are systematic, but there's some freedom in there. Um, you know, Jesse Bernhardt, who's now our defensive coordinator, he was a guy that played a lot of defensive midfield during college and he would throw checks and um, he was good at it. He proved he could do it. Um, and so that's kind of the thing as you get to be an older coach, you see more and more is like, you know, listen, the part of the game, the beauty of the game is creativity. Um, and you want guys to, to be able to be creative. Um, and, and, and I want guys to do that. My big thing is, you know, if you're going to do it, don't try it out in overtime of the biggest game of the year for the first time. Let, let's work on it in practice, prove you can do it. And if you can, we'll just keep making that leash longer and longer. 
Um, you know, if you show you have multiple release points and you can shoot the ball sidearm and low to high and behind the back, great. Every day is an opportunity to show us that you're competent and you're good at it. But let's not just throw it out there at the random time when yeah. you've done something else a lot better most of your career. So, again, you earn the rope you got. And I think that's fair. Yeah, I agree. Uh, what's your specific take on V-hold versus cross-check hold on defense? Uh, we're, we're one of those groups, and, you know, Jesse, I think, would say this, uh, and uh, I think it's more personal preference. We're, we're, we're all about just get the job done. Um, you know, switching hands, doing that, it, it's personal preference, because I do think some guys can, can, you know, it's just like shooting. Some guys are better at one than the other. Um, but yeah. let's work on it so that you're at a high level doing whatever you choose to do. And um, if, if you're not doing it well, we better keep working on it. <laughs> How about in one-on-one -on -one situations, backpedaling and giving ground versus moving laterally and bumping people? Or is it a little bit of both? I, I think there's sometimes both of those, but also crowding guys when you need to um, and not giving those guys that run. You know, so I think it's, um, I'd say probably moving with guys laterally, you know, trying to bump them off their dodge can be uh, really effective at times. I think getting out and crowding guys and not letting them get that long run where, you know, he's going a lot faster than you and, and you're probably not going to be able to drop step and run with a guy that's, you know, a super fast guy like a, you know, a Kyle Harrison. It's just, it's almost impossible. So you might have to go up and crowd him um, so he doesn't get that running start. So I think it's a little bit situational and also yeah. player specific. Yeah, for sure. All right, cool. How about um, on the offensive side? What would you say your guys' uh, philosophy is offensively at the University of Maryland? We, we've morphed um, depending on personnel. I, I think, listen, we, we are always going to work on being a group that shares the ball um, and, and tries to, you know, be multifaceted, um, looking at what we have and playing off those guys. Um, you know, I had a recruit, um, you know, text me uh, last week, and he was like, Coach, just watching you guys play – um, you know, what, what do you guys do? And I go, well, we have a lot of things we can do. You know, I think everybody has like a motion offense and they invert, um, they have a big little package. And I think everybody's got the wing pick stuff now. I think everybody does it. I think you just got to figure out based on the parts that you have, um, you know, what, what does each group do? And it might be, and I thought this is where Andy Towers and his staff did a great job um, you know, Matt Panetta, you, you saw it with the chaos in one midfield ran, you know, more of a hybrid box offense. And then they had, they called almost like an American line and they played a little differently. To me, that's great coaching. You know, like you're not putting guys in a box. You're just looking at what you have and trying to play to their strengths. And um, I think that's something that we do. And, and kind of going back to that recruit, I was like, listen, this year we, we felt like we had six guys that were just better at playing off each other. And they could also each guy could pretty much play in front of the goal on the wing or, or up top. And we don't always have that. Sometimes you have just a true crease guy. Um, but this year we felt like we, it was just going to be a lot more free flowing organic. And so it was more simple reads um, and knowing each other and knowing what the defense was going to do. Um, other years we haven't had that, you know, we haven't had maybe as many good care, you know, carriers like last year we had Jared Bernhardt who um, not every team had a guy that could really, you know, account for his speed. Some teams did um, and, and had a little better matchup at times. But um, we also had some guys, you know, like a Bubba Fairman that could put some pressure on you. So the more we could move and 
um, maybe pick and change matchups and, and move off ball to keep guys occupied, the better. So to me, it was a little more simplistic. Um, I felt like in, in 2017, we were a lot like that. You had Matt and Colin, um, you know, Dylan Maltz at the attack, and then you had Connor Kelly and Timmy Rotans, um, you know, playing up top. And you know, it was a pretty darn good group. Jared had to play midfield that year, but I, I think he put some pressure on you. But the next year, it became uh, we were so dependent on Connor Kelly. So, you know, Connor did a lot for us, carried the ball a lot, redodged slides, um, but it just worked for us um, that year. So, We've morphed every year. Um, yeah. 17, you know, 17, we were playing fast. I mean, uh, 2011, we played fast. And candidly, 12, we played a lot slower. Um, and that's kind of the team everybody remembers. We, we were super patient that year, and I won't run from that. Um, but even last year, you know, we were averaging 16 goals a game. And, um, you know, we had poles and short sticks that could go to the goal. And, um, you know, with, with Logan and, and as a veteran guy and Jared down there, we thought we could just play fast. So um, it's just a matter of having the depth and the parts to play. I think everybody wants to play that way. But if you're not a deep team and your defensive people aren't great on the offensive end, sometimes you got to play the way the team needs you to play. And yeah, you got to be okay with that. Yeah. And, but certainly the shot clock impacted the way that you and everybody played as far as, you know, half the feed and half the shoot or do something at a certain point, how did that change the way you guys played offense? Um, it really, you know, I think everybody had this sense of, oh my God, it's going to be different, but it, it really didn't change much. I think that was something that came out from, from most college coaches. When you talk to them, when, when we were facing that and you were, you know, just comparing practices when it got the shot clock put in, most of the guys said, it's like, you know, it, it's not like it, it impacts us that much. Um, I think in certain situations it does, you know, when you're, um, you know, you're going from defense to offense, it's the end of the quarter, um, you're, you know, going, you're killing a penalty, um, you're up late in the game, um, and maybe it's your second midfield, right, that's not as dynamic, um, and you're having a tough time running by people, or what sometimes gets lost on this is when you can't beat somebody, or um, you are playing a team that slides like crazy, at times, like they slide and recover like Bucknell so well that like you're not going to be able to just draw and dump and get a quick shot because their whole defense is about like sliding and covering the inside. So it's going to require some work, even though they're flat, like they're they're sliding fast. They're so good at what they do, and it's like you know you're you're the old rules. You were like trying to tell the refs we are going to the goal but they keep sliding so we can't get to the goal. So, yeah. and then we, we will drop a pass or, you know, we're just not moving the ball as quickly as we could. So um, I think the shot clock, at least it's, it's a hard number that you're working with. And in the, the officials, that's a tough thing to put on them to try to figure out whether they're going right. to the goal or not, you know, it's, and I, th I think we can be a little bit better on that shot clock, like that, like lowering the clock on a reset, I think would be yeah. good for the game. I agree. Well, it's interesting that it doesn't seem like a big difference for you as coaches. As a fan, it seems pretty different because, like, you don't have to, like, fast forward through a re – if you re record a game, you're not fast forwarding through, like, 40% <laughs> of it anymore. You're actually watching it because it's all action. So the substitution games are different. You know, you still play them, but, but you're not doing it for the sake of shortening a game if you were trying to, like, upset somebody where you wanted them to have the ball less. And – and while a lot of people thought 
I think that a shot clock would be in theory a defensive rule, meaning making it a little easier for the defense not to have to play defense as long. Um, and it very well still may be, but scores are going up, it seems like, and the efficiencies are still pretty high, which has resulted in, you know, you're going to have to be able to win a game now, 19-18, instead of, you know, figuring on, uh, well, we at least got to be able to win this thing 11-10 or 12-11. Yeah, talking to um, a lot of defensive coordinators or, or guys that are on that side of the ball, um, you know, as you go through the year, you know, you always have those Sundays where th maybe things didn't go well on Saturday or Monday, and, and, and guys are like, man, it's just so hard to stop anybody anymore. Like, who, who's great defensively anymore? And, and, and we kind of go back to, well, there's so many more possessions now. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right, like, you know, that's one thing that got lost in all this is, you know, the subbing game is it's, it's something that morphed and it was a way to kind of create some odd rushes and keep people on and all that. But you're right, like, that was a slow part of the game. If you were a fan watching, it's like, okay, what is that guy doing? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and now it, I think you see more, if you're going to do that, you got to be willing to play 5v5 because um, you just can't stand there anymore. And, and in a way, 5v5 is even better you yeah. know, just because you you got more space and you reduce the numbers. No doubt. I think to your perspective, that's great. Uh, I thought the rule that probably made the least amount of sense now looking back at it is, you know, when you got called for delay of game, you had to keep it in the box, which in theory, it's like, okay, well, it's really hard to do. All it did was once that happened, you got ultra conservative, typically ran behind the goal and slowed down the game even more. Yeah. Because um, you didn't, you were a risk adverse at that point because you didn't want to do anything up top. So you go behind and either the defense was going to come chase you or they were going to stand there and it made the game a crawl. For sure. And just, you know, people are just trying to score more often now. I mean, at the end of the day, it was easier to stop people for three or four minutes when they didn't really try to score until the end of <laughs> till, till the you know, timer went on. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, so um, people are trying to score a lot more. It's a, it's a really fun game. And I have to say, I've, I've really loved watching you guys play, particularly in 20. 19 and, and I think 2018 the way you guys played that positionless lacrosse that you're referring to where everybody is dodging you know at different angles and you got middies behind and attack out front and dodging a lot of wings which leads me to my question which is um, there was a lot of sort of two-man game whether it was a mirror situation or whether it was picking and I just wanted to get your perspective on that um, I, I'm incredibly interested in it. I think it's really effective, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts and philosophies on two-man game. Well, I know, you know, talking to you through the years, too, I mean, that's been a big thing that you've done and taught, um, you know, and, and I, you know, I know I've taken some things from you, even just some drills where, you know, you, instead of just a four-on-four, four, you know, you're, you're playing four-on-four four and you start with a, a pick on one side, you know, or you're doing a four-on-three with a pick on one side and then throwing it across. So um, I've stolen some things that you've given me and I appreciate that. Um, but I think we've all seen, you know, the, the game change in a lot of different ways and um, a lot more guys that are coming down from the north. But I think there are a lot more guys that are, instead of saying you need to be equally two-handed, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of guys now that have been brought up, like, just be really, really good with that one hand and be great maybe there and be good enough with your other hand. And we can do enough on the wings, getting under, uh, getting topside, um, you know, things like that. Where And, and then getting back, getting back where 
you know, we'll, we'll put you in a position where you can be very strong handed and still be successful. Um, so, um, you know, we've stolen things from other people and seen what other people can do and, and certainly stolen some things from the box game and listened to some guys speak and, and said, man, this, this might be good for our personnel. And, and, and sometimes it, it worked and sometimes it hasn't. Um, that's the, the beauty of the fall and maybe the early season is trying some of those things out. And sometimes on, on, the, on the whiteboard, it looks good. And then sometimes the guys, you know, when you get out there, they kind of look at you like, you're like, I know, okay, we won't do this guys. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you can tell when the guys, you know, feel comfortable with it. So um, I think, you know, being open-minded and, and always trying to evolve and change and grow and, um, you know, as the game changes, but also the players change and um, looking what you have. I think being adaptable is really important and, and, and trying to grow as a coach is always important. Uh, I know for us, you know, some of our personnel, like certain guys just aren't great behind the goal and they may be an attackman. So, you know, like Connor Kelly was a guy that we would keep at attack on faceoffs, but whenever, you know, we played offense, it was very rare that Connor would end up behind the goal very long. Not that he was bad there, but we just felt like he was such a dangerous shooter. Yeah. Anytime we get him on the winger up top, we felt like there was some stress on the defense. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Um, so two more topics. The first one is um, what's your philosophy on player development? Um, I think part of what you're recruiting is you're hoping through the process, you know, when, when you're selling what you're selling, you know, again, be the best. We're going to challenge you um, as a person, but also as a player and a student, you know, realizing, hey, we're, we're all about trying to make you the best you can be. And so that means a lot of different things, right? Like there's the strength and conditioning part of it. So, you know, buying into, you may not love the weight room, you may not have confidence there, but um, that's not a reason not to do it. Um, so getting guys to hopefully, and again, it's not always trying to be big and strong to just overpower guys. It's making sure that, you know, you stay healthy. Uh, when a guy pushes on you, you just don't fall over, um, you know, injury prevention, um, things like that. Um, uh, and then as a, a player, you know, it's, Hey, watching the film so that you, you become a student of the game. You, you're able to see things visually and, and not only see yourself, um, but also, you know, see the six on six and um, kind of realize, okay, the spacing, um, seeing what you're doing off ball, seeing what they're doing, you know, understanding what the zone is trying to do. Um, and then there's obviously the individual development, um, you know, whether it's, you know, wall ball, extra shooting, um, you know, a lot of teams now in the off season, you're playing box, maybe the kids go to uh, Canada during summer or in the fall, you know, you have an, a component where the kids, maybe they are and maybe they aren't with you that they're playing box and they're being creative and um, they're doing some of that wing stuff they're shooting on smaller goals um, the defensive guys are playing offense so they're working on their sticks so um, i think that you know recruiting part of it is you know recruiting talent but it's it's really finding your guys and then finding guys that you feel like in a couple years will be better um, because they're the right fits. They philosophically want to be challenged. Um, you know, they, you feel like they've got the athleticism and the drive. Um, they haven't peaked out. Um, and then maybe the way you want to play, they're just a good fit. Yeah, great stuff. All right, last question. Let's talk a little bit about recruiting from a 50,000 foot perspective. Um, 
we're in this COVID age right now where you guys have been in a dead period since March 15th or something like that. You haven't been able to see kids play live really since who knows, probably last fall or a prospect there or something like that. Um, how are you guys, how are you at Maryland? Um, how are you navigating this as it relates to evaluation and, and what is the uh, benefits and, 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 and pitfalls of, of only having film and then recommendations? I think, um, I think most everybody would tell you they'd much rather have um, just be there live. Um, and, you know, if you're there live, there are so many little things, you know, that you can pick up on. Um, you know, if there's a huddle, you know, what's the huddle like? Um, is a guy standing in the huddle? Is he standing over by himself? Is he, you know, are his eyes glued on the coach? Is he not really paying attention? Is he a guy that's picking his team up? Um, you know, um, if, if he doesn't play well, how does he respond on the sideline? Again, is he a leader on a team? Um, and those things like you're at the mercy of the cameraman, which, um, you know, you totally get they're going to follow the ball. And sometimes when you're on the sideline, as you know, you're not always watching that. Um, and, and there's a feel I think you get when you watch a game. Um, you're there, you're, 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 you're kind of picking up a personality of a player, but also the team. And that's always nice to have. Um, uh, I, I do think the, the club coaches, um, the high school coaches have done a really good job of making film accessible. Um, you know, there were a couple games early where you saw like um, maybe two teams playing and uh, the film quality wasn't great or they were wearing light numbers on light jerseys and dark numbers on dark jerseys and, and the numbers were small. And I think most everybody really made it just easier for us. And, and I think I'd say a, a, um, a thank you on behalf of so many coaches that are kind of cycling through this. And then they just they've done a great job just emailing you and saying these these events are available. Um, they're easy to kind of get through in terms of like, who do I want to sort out and see? Um, so that's been, uh, again, it's, a, it's like anything else right now, right? Things aren't great. It's, you know, we're going through some tough times. You got to be flexible. You got to realize it's going to be a little bit different um, yeah. and you make the most of it. You got to make the most of it. One of the things you talk about that you can't see or really, you can see it maybe, but you can't hear it is communication in the leadership. You know, especially on the defensive side, but really on the offensive side too. I mean, you watch these PLO guys that are mic'd up and you're like, all right, let's listen to Matt Dunn mic'd up or Eddie Glazer mic'd up. And, and, and you listen to that communication. Um, and you don't get that when you're watching this film. You can see people point and gesture. Um, but um, how are those, how does that impact your ability to evaluate people if you can't hear what they're saying? Yeah, you're, you're trying to pick up on some of that body language and, and you're hoping that, you know, you're getting that. Some film has sound, but most doesn't that I've come across. Um, so that's hard. Um, you know, you might have to call the coach um, just to get some clarity on that, whether it's yeah. high school or, or the club coach. Um, you know, you mentioned Matt Dunn. You know, Matt was a guy that, um, you know, had some injuries and, um, uh, you know, I don't think, you know, again, most people look at his high school career when, and say he would end up being, you know, the most valuable defenseman in, in the PLL and the MLL, you know, at, during his first, you know, five years out of um, college. Um, but he was, you know, that classic guy that we're all looking for. You know, he, he had all the ability, just went through those injuries and was a little bit under the radar. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I think it came down to us in Princeton and use a just a, a like a 2250 SAT, super smart guy. I just wanted that bigger school experience, um, which, you know, Maryland provided. And, um, just for some reason, really like Maryland, we have an honors college, so it kind of fit what he was looking for. Yeah. But the day he walked on campus and practiced, he was our best communicator as a freshman. Huh. I think that's, that's a great thing for a young guy to realize is, you know, Matt, I think, has put on a lot of weight. Um, he's worked on his angles and his footwork, and he's gotten more efficient um, in so many ways. But he got on the field early because, you know, he was smart, and he communicated well, and he certainly moved well. But now he's moving at an elite level. Right. And that was he just kept working on. But he could always fall back on the communication, the, you know, his, his IQ, his ability to read and sniff out plays and, and get everybody else organized. And, um, you know, he just was a tremendous guy for us for four years. And I'm just so happy for guys to kind of see what we knew because yeah. um, he just did so many good things for us. What do you think of this idea? Get a defenseman, mic, get, get mic'd up the way they mic up the PLL guys and be able to evaluate how somebody actually talks in a game. Oh, I think that'd be cool. That'd be sick. Yeah, I, think, I think a coach could do that, you know, yeah. do that in practice. For sure. It would be so interesting. I mean, it would be unbelievable development. I mean, forget about recruiting. Just to, like, be able to hear what someone is saying and be able to, to court – coordinate it with the video so you can actually see what they're seeing. The thing that people don't understand is it's not just like I'm hot or whatever. There's, there's like a new circumstance happening every couple of seconds with the movement, the ball movement, the threats, and all of these things that you have to process. And, you know, that's the hard part about communication is how quickly you have to process new circumstances and it goes for, you know, the extent of the possession. Well, I think that to me, a lot of that is like the difference between a great high school player and a great college player is that ability to process so fast and anticipate, communicate it effectively, um, you know, sniff things out. It's so much like a quarterback in high school that's got a great arm, um, but then he goes to college or the pros and he's got to read those defenses and yeah. read them quickly, you know, and put the, the ball in the small windows. You can have a great arm, but if you can't process, you know, and that's the great thing about like a Tom Brady, you know, or a Peyton Manning, like they would drop back and it was clear, it was decisive and it was done um, where other guys were still trying to figure out, you know, where to go and they get sacked. And it's, that's what's sometimes hard to explain to guys, you know, when they come to college, it's like, Hey, you just, you got to play faster. You got to process faster. Right. Um, you're on the ball, but it's, it's the other stuff. And then that's a hard one to teach. It is. And that, that, that happens on the offensive side too. I mean, your ability to process in so many ways is what then becomes your ability to make decisions. And then those decisions, and when people think of decision-making so often, they're like, oh, that's a good decision. That's a bad decision. But everything you're doing is a decision. Whatever skill you happen to use is a decision. And that's based on your processing of what's happening. And you watch, you know, uh, Anthony DeMeo pop a little BTB feed to the other MIDI cutting down. And, and that's like they're, they're processing. They're like, oh, this is going to happen. He's going to slip this little pick. And then he's going to pop this little feed. And then the guy catches it. And, you know, these types of things of being able to process and make decisions for skills, for what, whether to shoot or pass, whether to hitch, whether to seal or slip, whether to everything is a decision. Everything is processing. 
how do you sort of evaluate that? Because truly that's gotta be the difference between good and great and really what you're trying to find in a recruit. Yeah, hopefully if you watch enough film, you can, you, you, I wouldn't say you could, at least I can, and maybe I'm not smart enough. Uh, it takes me a while to kind of watch and start looking for trends um, and, and seeing game after game, are there some things that you're like, wow, that was a, that was a nice little play. Like, oh my God, wow, I, he saw that. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing I think I always tell recruits is we, we really, we rarely watch one game and we're like sold on a guy or we write a guy off. So you never have to worry about having a bad quarter, or one bad game. You know, we're, we're collecting enough data points where, you know, we want to make sure that it's not an impulse decision. So, um, you know, the more you can find trends and see things over and over, the more you're going to feel good about like, okay, this guy's got, it you know he's got he's 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 able to pick up some things and make some plays that maybe other guys don't and and you've seen that enough right and it's kind of interesting because on the one hand you really want to see people live so that you can see these intangibles this communication you can see their physicality and their burst and even the intensity of the game and how they compete in it and then you also just reference the importance of film and that you might have to really dig in. And we're in an age right now where all you got is film. And the advantage is there is that you can, you really can dig in and you can see trends and putting the time in there. And how, how do you sort of look at that? Well, I think another thing that's nice is just to be able to rewind. Yeah. You know, it, and it's, it's funny saying that, right? It sounds simple, but you know, if you're watching a game live, it happened, you know, yeah. and it's over. And, and so with some of the stuff on film, you know, something happens, you can rewind and watch it and watch it again and watch it again. And then again, you can actually rewind and watch everybody that was involved in that play right. instead of watching one. So it may take you longer to get through. Um, it's also nice that where you don't have to run from, game to game to game, you know, sometimes you look at the matrix of a tournament and right. there'll be three games you really want to go to at 9 a.m. And, you know, you, at best you're watching a half and a half, but what if the goalie you really want to see is playing the, 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 the other half? Now you're running from one field to another and it might take you a while and instead of watching 22 minutes, you're getting 16 minutes. Um, now you get the whole game. Or you're sitting next to Greg Carroll and he's making you laugh the entire time and, and you just like, <laughs> you're taking a note on one play and you miss another play. I mean, there's definite advantages to film. I mean, ideally, you know, everybody would do both. Um, but, um, but Tills, um, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on this podcast and sharing your experiences and your journey and your philosophies. And um, obviously you've, uh, You've built a great thing uh, so far, and I know you got a long way to go, but um, really fired up to have you on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, certainly, you, know, you reflect back in times like this, and even during you know the, the summer when things were down, you know you watch an old game and you think about some of the great guys you coached, and um, you know their dads now or their you know their husbands, and uh, you're just thankful for the the guys you've been able to you know just be around and develop relationships with and you still have those during times like this when you can't play and you know that as a coach it's like you know those young men that you get to know all of a sudden it, you know they graduate and they're and they end up being more peers and they're friends um, and yeah. you'll have those relationships forever um, and that's a gift and, and, and I'm thankful for that so it's pretty cool to reflect on. 
Totally. Um, well, let's catch up soon and talk a little two-man game and, and continue to watch our uh, uh, the free play videos. Love it. I'm all in. Sign me up. All right, man. All right. See you, Tails. Have a good one. Thanks.